Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Dr. Joanne Liu, is the International President of Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders. She is a Canadian pediatrician by training and has been with MSF for almost her entire career. She became the international head of MSF in 2013. We spoke not long after she visited MSF's operations in a stretch of land in Bangladesh called Cox's Bazaar. This is where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees have fled from neighboring Myanmar in recent months, and it is the site of one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Dr. Liu discusses the conditions there and the kind of unique medical needs that stem from having such a massive population displacement occur in such a short period of time. So this episode shifts between wonky explanations of important issues in world affairs and Dr. Liu's own very personal experience with those issues. Dr. Liu tells, I think, a few very powerful stories, including one from a recent visit to a detention center for African migrants in Libya, a place she called, quote, the most inhuman incarnation of men's cruelty that she's ever seen. We also discuss in detail a truly tragic event that befell MSF in October 2015 when U.S. fighter jets bombed an MSF hospital in Afghanistan, killing many of her colleagues. And she talks not only about how she experienced that tragedy personally, but also some of the policy debates that that incident ignited. I just want to thank Dr. Liu and MSF for making this conversation possible. It's one I've been looking forward to for a long time. It's been on my calendar for a long time. Thank you all. You will learn a lot about the work of MSF around the world, its history, and how it gained a reputation for being one of the more fearless global humanitarian organizations. If you're a regular listener to the show, just thank you. Thank you for, for being with me for, for these years now. Uh, it's gratifying to know that there are so many people out there who find some inspiration, find some knowledge, love learning about these kinds of global issues that we tackle in this podcast. I really don't think there is any other podcast out there that so consistently covers these kinds of global issues in a way that we do. So thank you for just sticking with me, sticking with the show for, for all these years. If you are new to the show, welcome. I recommend you go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and scroll through our archives, listen to a few of the older episodes. A lot of these episodes are basically evergreen. You can go back and listen to them at, at any time and find some interesting nuggets and, and some useful knowledge that may help you in your career or just become a better and more well-rounded individual citizen of the world. All right, now here is my conversation with Dr. Joanne Liu, International President of MSF. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think in all, uh, in all honesty, I don't really like to compare, you know, one crisis from another. So uh, I think that each crisis is unique. And the one that is happening in uh, Bangladesh is unique uh, in a sense that um, I think we have to put things, uh, although I don't like to, I just said I don't want to compare, we have to put things in perspective that there's not many crises in, in, our, recent, um, in our recent past where more than 400,000 people move within three weeks. And now we have a total of 620, uh, 100,000 people who have fled from Myanmar to Bangladesh. And so I think it's important to uh, really emphasize that because um, people don't flee massively unless something horrible is happening to them. And, and, and the last time we got such a massive displacement in such a short time, it's either the Kosovo War or it's either the, uh, the, the Great Lakes. So, um, so I think that it's one thing what I've seen in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh where people have took refuge, but we should not obliterate the fact that people fled horrors uh, in Myanmar, and and uh, and this today we don't have visibility of what happened. We don't know what happened because there were not really any eyewitness. But we still need to keep that in in mind. So that's one thing. So what what is MSF doing on the ground in Cox Bazar in Bangladesh, which is the 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 sort of province of Bangladesh where most of the Rohingya refugees have fled? What sort of uh, operations are you running? So we we. We've been working in Cox Bazar for decades uh, because there's already uh, been a place of uh, to welcome people for the for the for the last many years. So there were about between 200 and 300,000 people. So we already had clinics there. Uh, we one of the we want we're running one of the biggest uh, medical clinic uh, with 70 beds uh, hospitalization, and uh, we do um, I think overall. Uh, I would say close to a thousand um, uh, outpatient department consultation on a daily basis. So it, in all our clinic, we we now have more than seven clinic dispersed in in that camp. I think what is very very uh, and 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 what I'm going to tell you is a bit is a bit different. So basically, MSF is is doing the usual basic things of what we we are somehow I would say. The most known for is 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 medical care at primary healthcare level uh, and secondary healthcare level, meaning hospitalization. We do that in different areas of the camp. Uh, the camp today is split in different areas. Uh, it it is very very um, I would say uh, uh, I would say different from one spot to another. You have to imagine a land of 17 kilometers with about um, several 
dozens of, of muddy hilltops. And on this, people are trying to live. And, and this is Cox's Bazaar. This is this is Cox's yeah, Bazaar, yeah. That's Cox's Bazaar. And then basically I there's only one main road that 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 you can drive in in the camp and it only uh can uh get you within the first uh few kilometers. And after that you have to do it by foot. So there's 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 of course delivery, uh difficulty of aid and as well as of access of people when they want to come and pick up some goods. So I walked around that camp and, and, uh, first of all is, it is the challenge to walk in a camp in a mud knee, knee deep, uh, uh, to, uh, in, in cap to you, to kneecap, you know, while you walk. So, uh, so that's quite a bit of an exercise under, under the rain. And, and the, this for me was a six hours walk for people that's their, their reality of life. And then people are but living It took you with very six little. hours to walk the camp because of the, the mud? Well, I didn't, I didn't walk the whole camp. Mm-hmm. I only, I only walked a few kilometers because you go up and down, up and down. Then you have to cross, uh, rivers on, on what we call the bamboo bridge. And, and then again, up and down. And then you slide in the mud. Then you get stuck in the mud. Uh, so it's, 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 it's quite a bit of a, of, of, of a journey. So, so it's it just to give a bit of flavor that, that it's, it's, it's damp, it's cold, it's wet. People don't have enough plastic sheeting to sit on, don't have enough plastic sheeting to cover themselves. Uh, there's not enough water per head. Uh, there's not enough access to care. Uh, and there's not enough food for everybody or not even complete food. There's some people who get more, especially the people who are close to the entrance of the, of the camp, which is the oldest part of the camp. But people have basically uh, uh, install themselves like away from uh, at the periphery because that's where there were spots. But basically, there is as well less services because you're further away from the road. Um, you earlier said that what makes this situation so unique is the scale and the speed in which this displacement crisis emerged. <laughs> Does that fact uh, sort of cause any? new sort of and unique kind of medical conditions that you're seeing in uh, Cox's Bazaar, like, like compared to other uh, crises that you've dealt with, does the speed and the size of this displacement crisis mean that there are just kind of unique medical challenges? Well, the thing is, is, is everything is unique, but I think what is, uh, I would say, uh, uh, noticeable is the fact that people live really with nothing. That's one thing, or very, very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is quite as well striking is the fact that uh, the stories that we hear from people, uh, villages that were burned down, women's were split from men, so mother from father, sister from brothers, and, and we know that many of the men are now missing, so we don't know what happened to them. A lot of women are coming on their own, uh, and daughters as well on their own. And, and so, so there is, uh, there's clearly, and we don't have the fact yet, but we know there's going to be a gender balance in terms of the population makeup in, in Cox Bazaar. Um, we know that, um, uh, and numbers will come in the next few weeks where we're doing retrospective, uh, what we call, sort of, um, death rate. And then we know that it was, it's really high. It's way above 
the uh, the emergency threshold. Um, but but the unicity is 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 they're not coming with much. They are very very vulnerable. Uh, and and it's clear that this that when we look at what are the chief complaint in the in the uh, medical care facilities that we run, it's upper respiratory tract infection or lower respiratory tract infection, skin diseases, and watery diarrhea. And it's all connected to the living condition uh, in Cox Bazar. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that we, we don't have yet the full visibility is that when we know that the they fled something herbal and there's a high level of, of trauma, physical trauma. We, we, we care for, for our several hundreds of people with, with physical trauma, but as well, we are now caring slowly about um, mental trauma. And so are we, we're going to face probably a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and as well, the other thing that we truly don't have uh, yet visibility because people, I think, uh, we'll address that much later. It's, it's being exposed to physical violence, but being exposed to sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this, these are the things that will come afterwards. Because the way it happens is when people flee really, really fast and they are fleeing for their life, when they arrive somewhere else, they're really on adrenaline rush and they are just trying to get what they can to survive. And so they're lining up. What was clear to me when I was there is people were lining up to get the plastic sheeting. They were lining up to get a bag of rice. They were in complete survivor mode. Um, so the the crisis in, in, in Bangladesh and in Myanmar is just the latest manifestation of, of a global refugee crisis. And I know that throughout your tenure as head of MSF, it's something that you sort of have seen emerge and become more and more acute. I'm interested to learn how the global refugee crisis has shaped or informed the work of MSF more broadly. How how has your work as an organization delivering medical aid sort of shifted and changed over the last like five or six years? Well, that is a very interesting question uh, because um, actually we're always surprised to get that question, uh, in fact, as an organization, because I would say core of what we do, uh, MSF, is to work with displaced population. And that is at the inception of, of what we are as an organization since 1971, because we were, we work at, at the front line in, in conflict zone, war zones. Uh, we, we work with displaced population. So either they are displaced within, uh, within borders and they are internally displaced people or across border and they are refugees. So for us, working with, uh, uh, refugees and displaced people is at the core of our social mission. And, and so that, that is what we do. Period. So, um, what we find interesting is this, this sort of traction it has in terms of how people are paying attention to the crisis because what used to only happen uh, in, in the conflict area and, and the surrounding countries is now knocking at the door of, uh, of European countries. And all of a sudden, it's not only uh, the issue of forced displacement, but it's, it's, it's a refugee migrant crisis. 
Mm-hmm. Now it's labeled crisis, but it's there's nothing you but it's know. It's been a crisis I, I for you say. guys, like the the whole time. You've you've been there. It's just finally we're all yeah. paying attention, sort of thing. It, yeah, and 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 the thing is, for us is is, is we're like, oh well, guys, you, you know the 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 thing is, in in 2011 there were f- 41 million uh, forcibly displaced people, and and it climbed up to uh, now 65 million. But, you know, I think that it's a noticeable figure is 41 million as well. So it, it just is, it's been there. It is growing, in fact. And, 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 uh, the reason why things are growing, uh, when I, I, I said in a simple way is the fact that I think that the push factor didn't change. People are facing hardship from, from famine, from, from totalitarian regime, from war, conflict, from organized crime, and they leave. And, and they leave because they leave for their life and they leave to get a life. That's as, as simple as this. And since, you know, since the beginning of the times, people have been crossing, uh, I would say border, uh, for, for, for their life. This, this is nothing new in, 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 in the history of humanity. It's just the, the scale is bigger and we're now noticing. Well, we're noticing because we feel affected by it. Mm. Well, when I say we, we, I think that the global north feel affected by it mm. because all of a sudden they cannot ignore it. People are washing up on their shores and they say, oh, God, you're on my shore. So <laughs> so maybe I should pay attention. So so but before when they were in the shore of another country that was not part of Europe, it wasn't really it was a non-event. So it, it, it's and it's it is a lot of, of, of I would say, um, uh, um issue that are like this it's a bit you know like ebola because i think ebola is always a good good example is ebola the first six months was really uh, a hemorrhagic fever happening in in western africa and few people were dying and being affected and we're seeing you know the the the, the once in a while picture horror was happening there for the population the community but that was not part of some part of the world business but the day that we repatriated to American, to USA, and then few European to Europe uh, infected with the virus. All of a sudden, the world was facing a bio threat, a pandemic, and needed to respond. Uh, and and so it's 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 it's. I think it's important to remind people that often things are not really new. Uh, they've been there for a while, and they've been incubating. And, 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 and we, it's only when a certain part of the world is paying attention, then all of a sudden it's an issue. Well, I have news for you. It's, it's been there for a long time. Um, so, so that kind of leads me right into something I, I think would be helpful for my listeners to, to learn from you, which is a little bit about the history of MSF and how it got started. Uh, and sort of the, the sort of how it's evolved over the years. So for those who are, I think everyone listening is, is obviously aware of MSF, but perhaps they don't know more broadly, um, where it started, how it was founded. Can you kind of take us through a little bit of, of, of the various iterations of MSF over the years? Well, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders started, uh, in 1971 at the wake of, uh, the Biafra crisis. Where a bunch of doctors—that's a bit, you know, like the mythology story, but I yeah. guess that's the story we gave. That basically they came back and just said, "We have to tell the world what is going on there." Mm-hmm. And then working for the Red Cross, it was not possible to bear witness on what they have seen because the Med- and, Red Cross needs to stay like completely neutral, right? That's the idea. 
Well, that's the idea. But, you know, as you may see, things have evolved as well on the red side, mm-hmm. on the Red Cross side. So uh, but uh, back then, that was the way things were. And so uh, so a bunch of doctors and, and journalists decided to create and they were 13 uh, funding uh, uh, people and, and half of them were journalists and they just said, said we're going we're gonna to fund a new organization that will bring, uh, uh, that will respond to acute need in, in people in crisis, but we will be able to, uh, to bear witness on what we see. Uh, but, but, and our key role is to, to give access to healthcare, but regardless of gender, race, religion, creed, political affiliation. It would be basically on people's medical needs. So, uh, so that's how it was created. And of course, when it started, it was pretty, I would say, um, uh, humble and small. And actually, initially, what MSF was doing is was recruiting doctors for other organizations. And, 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 uh, and as it started to gain a little bit more, I would say, uh, experience, uh, it, it, it decided to uh, to basically do their own fundraising and their own operation and have their own permanent staff, and and that was a huge thing because initially it was sort of an initiative between friends, and all of a sudden we decided to become a little bit more organized, a bit more professional, and that created the first big crisis in MSF it was in 1979, where basically some people wanted to keep it at the family size. And other people say, no, we need to organize ourselves and we need to, to professionalize ourselves. And so there was a full era of the 80s where in that period, a lot of people call it the golden age of MSF to a certain extent, was the time when we created the guidelines uh, of MSF, when we created the kit. So we have created a full logistical support at MSF where we have kit, like a kit for how to respond to um, refugee and influx of refugees and we have a kit that responds to the basic medical basic needs of refugees for thousand people and then and then you send those kit per per number of people you have so you have 10,000 people who just cross the border you send 10, 10, 10 kit of 1,000 for example um, we have kit for for Ebola but we have kit for cholera we have kit for malnutrition crisis so that period was the period that we actually created the tools of actually what is giving today, I would say, the edge of MSF is, is having the tools to be able to respond quickly uh, to, to crisis. And then the 90s came and we did something that we never thought that would make such a, di- a, a difference for us. But we increases the number of officers we add in the world, and now we have more than 48 officers around the world, and we did uh, recruitment across the world, but we did as well fundraising. And then one of the things we secure in the 90s is our financial independence. And today, uh, especially after the fact that we stopped taking EU fundings after the EU-Turkey deal, uh, we have more than 94% on what we call uh, private funds. We, we have the privilege of having 6 million, um, I would say, uh, regular donors to MSF. And that's what allows us today to work in 70 countries, having a global uh, lo- a workforce of 42,000 individuals uh, and having an incoming budget of 1.5 billion. 
And that gave you the freedom to tell the European Union, no, thank you, after they uh, entered this, you you referenced it, this deal with Turkey a few years ago, in which uh, basically European Union tried to shut its borders and um, to to refugees and migrants seeking to flee from Turkey to Europe. Yeah, it's exactly what we did. It's, uh, we did that last year and uh, last spring last year. And, and basically our take was we, it would be completely apocritical to take money from, um, from the, uh, European Union when we know that today the restrictive policy on migrants and refugees is increasing their suffering. And, and, and we must say that this was not uh, an easy decision and this was a highly contested internally decision. We don't always agree, but we, we often finish to agree to disagree within MSF. And, and so right now, I mean, like it, the, the hypocrisy would theoretically come from the fact that you would take European Union dollars to, you know, treat, uh, you know, people who are on the shores of, of Greece, uh, you know, who are there and in desperate conditions because of these EU policies. Exactly. Um, so uh, can you talk a little bit about how you joined uh, MSF? Uh, you were born in Quebec City, is, is that right? Well, I'm, 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 I'm like many of the 42,000 people who are making MSF today who just wanted to be MSF. So I'm, I'm one of those, those people when I was a teenager that I've read a book on a volunteer uh, doctor for MSF working in Afghanistan. And um and was in, in those times of, uh, of the Russian occupation. And, and ISIS said, Oh my God, this is such an incredible type of, of, of commitment and, and, and work and life. And in addition to that, because I'm, I'm like any good teenager, uh, had my own, uh, what I call uh, existential crisis. And I read books. And one of the books I read was as well, The Plague from Albert Camus. Mm. Which is a really great book. I that, that that I, if you haven't read it, you should read it because I yes. think it's it, it, it's a story about our humanity, and it's a story about um of, of what we face today in times of crisis is 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 the story is about this doctor uh, dealing with patient with plague. He doesn't have the treatment, but he keeps trying to care for patient. And at one point, he's being asked, "But doctor, Rio." What is driving you? Why do you keep going? And the doctor sighed and just said, well, I never got used to death. I don't know more. And, and I remember reading those, those words and I just say, I am promising myself that I will never, never get used to death and I will fight for life. And so my answer was to uh, to join MSF. Have any uh, events in your career um, challenged that determination that you had to not uh, sort of be acceptance of, of death? Have you ever come close, you think, uh, to to sort of that that acceptance in any way? It's not the acceptance of death, but I must say that my visit in Libya in September was very... Um, I would say um, I think that um, I've seen one of the most uh, the most inhuman 
incarnation of men's cruelty in Libya. And, uh, and I think that is, it's, it's one moment in my life that I just said, Oh my God, I doubt, I doubt about our common humanity. And, and, um, and, and so the reason being that in Libya today, and I'm sure you've seen, uh, the auction on, 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 on selling, uh, African, uh, migrants, uh, is the fact that today tens of thousands of people are trapped in Libya and they are being in cycle of, of captivity. Uh, either they're being sold, either they, they, they are forced into prostitution, they are kidnapped and extorted money, and, and they just cannot escape from that. And in addition to that, uh, they, uh, we have closed the, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and, and they cannot, uh, cross anymore, or hardly. Only few of them can. And so, I've hardly seen in my life so much condensed, concentrated human suffering. People being, being kept in, in what they, in, in detention center for the sole crime of wanting to have a life or fleeing for their life and being abused over and over and over again. I've, I, 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 I cannot get uh, used to this, to this thought. And this is why we speak out about it in, 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 in September. And this is why we wrote an open letter to the European governments about, uh, about denouncing the situation that is happening in Libya of what we call, uh, I would say, uh, a business on, uh, a business on, on human desperation. Was there a specific encounter or a specific thing you witnessed that um, sort of caused these doubts to rise in your head? I think it's what I've seen and what I've heard. I think that at one point, people knew I'm the international president, and I said I, uh, I, I would come and visit one of the det- det- detention centers where we bring uh, basic health care. And, and I'm there and there's this big man in front of the door and he sees me and, and I just said, I'm coming to visit the center. He said, yes. And so he opened the door and then all of a sudden in that, when he opened the door, I see hundreds of people packed in a dark room, not ventilated, emaciated face. And I won't see, see those white eyes in those, in those black face. And they all telling me, get me out of here. Save me. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, how can this happen in the 21st century? I mean, and so that image will stay with me forever. And then after that is, is the stories they told me about what is happening to them. Like, how do you process that kind of? uh situation like how like how how do you try to you know make sense of it and then be able to carry on with your your work after witnessing something like that well this is really really hurtful and this is this is really uh i would say um 
I think that um, I think it breaks something inside you when you see something like this about 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 believing about what I was saying about our common humanity, what 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 belongs to all human beings. Because I believe that if you don't recognize the humanity in 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 your neighbor, then it, it, and and if you erode the humanity of of uh, in your in in other people, then it's the beginning of denying your own humanity. And so, um, for me, and that's why we we had decided collectively was to speak out and not let people believe that. Uh, and then we knew that the price could be that we might be kicked out. Of, of the country and and but but as I said we just cannot know that and not share that with the rest of the world and so that's what we did is is we we share it and we we've told you know everybody that we met every patient I care for I told them I said my promise is my organization will use its voice to tell the world what is your reality and are, are you still in Libya? Is, is, was MSF eventually kicked out, or are you still there? No, we're still there, and um, we still speak out. That's obviously as 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 you're 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 doing now. Um, there, there's another uh, issue I wanted to ask you about, which is again, like I think, an unfortunate trend in world affairs that seems to coincide also with your leadership as a head of a a large, you know, uh, health and emergency relief operation, which is what seems to be an increasingly frequent attacks on health workers and health facilities. And I, I know that MSF has borne the brunt of, of a lot of those uh, attacks. And I'm curious to learn from you, like why now suddenly it seems that there seems to be this uh, surge in attacks on, on health facilities around the world, including on MSF facilities. Well, attacks on hospital and attacks, what we call a medical mission, it's which because we want to include not only the hospital, but the clinics and the ambulances and, and the doctors and the patient is, is, is nothing per se new. The reality is we don't have any benchmark. Uh, uh, so we don't know how often it happened, but I know that collectively we all thought that it was happening. Uh, and then we needed to have an inventory of that. And this is how, uh, healthcare in danger came up the project of ICRC. Uh, we had the medical care under fire MSF. And, and it has, has created, I would say, a momentum of that. And we have now a bit of an idea how often it happens and all that. So we know it happens. It not, not only happened to MSF, it happens to everybody. Uh, the, the difference is, is many people don't have the capacity to talk about it or decide to not really be as spoken as us, MSF. I think what is the, what, what has been, I would say, a defining moment um, uh, for the organization, uh, it's it's the attack in Kunduz on October third, twenty fifteen. Mm -hmm. can, can you um, can you um, just f for those who are not uh, familiar, can you explain what what happened? Uh, and th this was a, it was an attack that the you know the, basically the U.S. bombed your facility. Can you describe like what happened and how you learned of that news? Well. Um, so it's it's a hospital in in uh, the northeastern part of Afghanistan. It's a place called Kunduz, and MSF, after several years of negotiation, opened in 2011 a trauma center, and uh, it was a hundred bed trauma center that actually I ended up visiting and working in it. 
in uh, just a few months before it was bombed. And, uh, and basically it was a place that uh, was, I, call, I used to call it the gem of northeastern Afghanistan because everybody in the valley of the Badrashah and, and Panjshir Valley knew that if they were sick, if they had a broken bone, the place to be fixed was Kunduz Trauma Center. And it was a place that everybody was coming from both sides. And, 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 and the thing is, I remember when I was doing the medical rounds, having seen people from the opposition, people from the governmental side, and I said, oh my God, this is such an, 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 uh, a, I would say a unique and, uh, and I would say place of healing because everybody feels safe to come to this place. And, and, and the thing is, um, we, we had as well a highly special scare because we were doing, uh, in, in, uh, we, we were doing what you call in, in, uh, it's a in intensive care unit, but we were, uh, broken bone were with internal fixator, not only external fixator. So it was so, sort of high tech stuff for what we, we, uh, when we compare it to many other places we work with, we don't have the possibility to have that high level of technology. So, a place where people knew who we were, a place where people had our GPS, uh, I would say, um, indication, uh, location. And, and, and so what happened is that, that week of October 3rd, 2015, there were the, there were the, there were some, some fighting happening. And, um, and basically, uh, the, the front line sort of moved and then, and, uh, we end up being, instead of being on the governmental side, we end up being on the opposition side. But this was known and people came to us and say it's going to be as usual. And what happened is on a clear night, uh, and we, we, you, you must understand that because the, the, the front line is so close to where the hospital is, we are in 24 hours out of 24 operating patient because we have casualty. We have people who are wounded, wounded are coming in from both sides, yeah, presumably. From both sides. And it's just, it just nonstop, completely nonstop. And then that Friday overnight at two o'clock in the morning, uh, in the clear, clear sky, we, we, we had got airstrike. It was not only one airstrike. But it was five airstrikes over more than an hour period, despite the fact that we call all the authorities in Afghanistan, in the U.S., telling them, by the way, are you aware that you're bombing a fully functional hospital? And so 42 people lost their life, and we lost 14 of our colleagues, doctors, nurses, ER doc, ICU doc. So for MSF, this will remain a black day. Um, but, uh, it, but it, it was, can I ask, um, like, how did you learn of the news personally? Like what, what was happening and, and like, what were you doing? Like when, when were you alerted of this and what was your well, like first, it, first instinct? What was your first, first things you did after that? Well, the thing is I was coming back from South Sudan and I was in, in my, uh, I, I was in the, I was catching another plane and, 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 and so I turned on my phone while I was 
catching my, my next plane. And then I saw someone send me a message. And so, uh, so the good thing is I was, I was, uh, flying back to Geneva. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is our, and, and the thing is when you, 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 because the first news was a hospital, our hospital Kunduz was bombed, but we had no news initially, no, no details. We didn't know what happened. We didn't know how many of our colleagues we lost. We just found out that as the hours were, 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 were advancing. And so, um, no, it was a very, it was a very, very dark day. Very, very dark day. And, 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 and yes. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, have you pursued justice or claims or, or what has the response from the U S government been? Well, the, the thing is, is, is very early on, actually, the U S took responsibility for the attack. And, uh, and so, uh, that was one thing, uh, which is, you know, something that, that, that it's not often done, but they took responsibility for the attack. And then one of the things that we were asking, uh, and that's what we did in the, the press conference three days afterwards was asking for the uh, international fact finding, uh, commission. And it meaning that we wanted to have an independent investigation because we wanted to know what happened. MSF, although we were hurt, although we were mourning, although we were very angry, we were not seeking justice. We were seeking understanding. And this is why we asked for the independent investigation. Because we say, what led to that? And what can we do to make sure that this does not happen again? And it's always been our goal. Have the facilities been repaired in Kunduz? Well, the facility, I don't know if you've ever seen picture, is basically the main building where there was the ICU and the uh, the, the operating theater and uh, the radiology and emergency was basically completely burned down. Uh, patient, you no, know, burned alive in their bed uh, while people were trying to withdraw from, 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 from the burning building. So, uh, so, and, and, and the, actually the heat was so much that the foundation hmm. of the hospital is, is wrecked. So, and, and then we have decided that we will not go back there. Uh, and we, um, we, uh, actually, uh, of course, the first thing our team asked us, uh, our medical team, Afghan medical team and international team said, when are we going to start again? And, but for us, it took us actually, uh, almost two years because we just started this fall again to open a small clinic in the region. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that we had a common understanding of how people will respect the medical facility of MSF and, 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 and that, that, that we felt safe enough to resume activities. Um, we're, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you the chance to plug or discuss any other aspect of, of MSF work that you might want to before I, I let you go or what you are looking forward to well, in, in the I, near I future. Think just, yeah. just to finish the conversation on Kunduz is, mm. is the fact that it, this has led, because one of the things MSF asked and many other people and many other organizations 
is is a political signal that that hospital was a place of healing that you were from living in the United States in New York or Geneva or Kunduz in Afghanistan and they shouldn't be bombed when people are fighting for their life they shouldn't be bombed and so therefore this led to the resolution 2286 where the UN Security Council unanimously with the back of, uh, the back of uh, being backed up by more than 80 countries they said in that resolution that the medical uh, facilities the patient, the caretaker were all, uh, I would say, uh, protected in, 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 in conflict zone. The reality is words are cheap because this hasn't been operationalized and therefore li- very little has changed in the field. So we need, because I'm, I'm taking the opportunity, it's, it's, we need people's support to say that, that, uh, war have rules and that we should not drag hospitals onto the battlefield. Uh, well, Dr. Lou, thank you so much for your time and, and for your work and sharing some of your insights and, and experiences with me and, and the audience. This was, this was powerful. Thank you very much for this opportunity. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Liu. That was, that was great. That was a really powerful interview i thought i I learned a lot from it i suspect you did too i definitely want to do more to highlight this catastrophe ongoing in libya in which african migrants are being treated as chattel and are held in these horrendous conditions so you can expect uh, some future episodes that take a closer look at, at that issue in particular all right we'll see you next time bye The views and opinions expressed in the podcast 